As the world begins to emerge from the cave of the 21st century and opens its eyes onto the suffering from centuries of injustice and the bastardization of what it means to be free, the new Nomos podcast is a call. A call for a new beginning. A call for the new men and the new women that yearn to be truly free. A call for us to fulfill our destiny. A call for a new Nomos on the earth. Welcome to the New Nomos Podcast. I'm Abdallah Dutton, inviting you to join me on this journey of discovery to define what the New Nomos is and what we need to get there. As a key figure in European culture, I wanted to devote this episode to the life and works of Goethe. Now, Goethe lived at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century and was what you could define as a polymath. He was an expert in many different fields, but he is perhaps most renowned today for his poetry and plays and writings. In a time when Europe was very anti-Islam, Goethe was actively studying Islam and engaging with Islam and everything that that meant. And this is something that comes through his works, it comes through his letters, and it's an idea that I wanted to explore in greater detail. But in order to get to that point, I wanted to first have a better understanding of the works of Goethe. So in this episode, I interviewed Hajj Abu Bakr Riga, who is a German lawyer and passionate Goethean, so much so that he has recently released a book called Die Kampa. Unfortunately for us English speakers, it's in German. It's a story that draws inspiration from the life of Goethe and in particular his Italian journey. Over the past 20 years, Hajj Abu Bakr has also actively and consistently hosted tours of Weimar, the town that represents the heart of the German classics and where Goethe lived alongside Schiller and engaged with Schiller and from them came the era of the German classics. So, without much further ado, I present to you episode 5, Muhammad Wolfgang von Goethe. Polymath and visionary. To say something very general about Goethe, if you take the main works of Goethe and you go through it, I'm talking here about uh, elective affinities, the young Werther Faust, I mean, you know, uh, Wilhelm Meister's apprenticeship and so on. I mean, the most famous books of Goethe. And you read them when you are in your age between 20 and 30. And you re read them again between 30 and 40. And you read them again between 40 and 50. And you read them again between 50 and 60. You will not be bored. Because you will realize these books are going alongside with you. And relating to your knowledge, your state, your youth, your age, your experience, your desperation, your love, whatever it may be, the books will give you stuff. They will be feeding you with these books. Amazing. To give you one example, I have read personally 
maybe 10 times the Faust. And I'm still exploring. <laughs> it's a book which is never read because it's a book which is alive. Because Goethe has put in the book so many different things, so many different aspects, so many different perspectives that the book is corresponding to you and, and, and lives with you. And, and you can open it up and you find a phrase you say, well, that, that I have never read before. Faust is, you can say, his most famous book. I mean, Goethe was writing this book basically all over his life. I mean, he had the first ideas when he was a relatively young man. He ended the book very short time before he died. And is uh, is a book which is revealing. I mean, it's not it's not a, a book of facts. It's a quite complicated story, and it has two parts. One is a bit easier to grasp. The second one is very visionary, very difficult to grasp. It forms a totality, which basically deals with all aspects of life. I mean, morality, philosophy, literature, poetry, science. Uh, very visionary, specifically just the, the second part, because it deals with and talks about the innovation of paper money, um, uh, globalization, collateral damages through will of power, uh, economical issues. I mean, it's everything in there. So it's like a copy or, let's say, an in-depth archive of all the things Goethe ever thought in his life, put in, in a very hidden structure which is revealing the whole time. It has a very, very interesting end where basically the death of the main protagonist, which is Faust, who has a kind of a very complicated relation to, to another man called Mephisto, which is the evil character in the play. The very end when Faust uh, dies, he's coming closer to divine realms, as Goethe names it. And lots of people were thinking, because Faust is a very kind of controversial character and he also is guilty for the death of five people in the play involves himself in very dark and, and ugly things also. So he's guilty to an extent. But to the surprise of everybody, Goethe was not sending him into hell. He was sending him into the heavens. And there was is one chorus in the very end when Faust is received by the angels and, and basically carried into the heavens. And there's a chorus, which is very significant, where the chorus is singing basically, whoever has a strong yearning, we can save. And this is a very significant psychological and philosophical description of Goethe himself, because he always had his whole life through a yearning. And that yearning, he never, never gave up. And that yearning brought him to different subjects, you know, like he was interested in nature, in plants, in stones, in politics, in economics, in poetry, in traveling. But whenever he found something, it was not fulfilling in the sense that he stopped. He, his yearning was driving him further and further and further. And I found very wonderful and significant that, so the Faust, which is his testimony, if you want, and, and Goethe ended the Faust very short time before he died. And that was for me a very significant statement. The yearning is so significant because, and that's the logic of the, of the Faust, your yearning will bring you to the divine. If you have a strong yearning, somebody will, somebody in brackets will, will rescue you, will save you. What is the main idea of the Faust? Complicated subject because it's a very <laughs> long and big book. So in the first part, Goethe introduces two characters. One is Faust, one is Mephistopheles. So the characterization of Faust is basically somebody who wants to understand the main principles of life. He wants to get in-depth knowledge how life works. Yeah. So he's very much driven by sciences in the beginning. 
but then also disappointed, but he, he does not come to the conclusion. So he's in a kind of life crisis on that, in a kind of deep crisis. And he like calls for something which could solve the situation. And then he turns into something which is quite extraordinary. He said, well, I need magic. So he thinks maybe, maybe I can find some magic to understand how everything works, how everything is connected. What is the main principle, the main law, which keeps everything together, keeps everything moving and so on. By calling that, suddenly the other character appears, which is Mephistopheles. Mephistopheles is characterized as the evil character, nearly like the devil, really, a personification of the devil, an evil character. And his main principle is he denies everything. So he's very cynical. So these two characters come together in a very, very interesting way because it's basically a bet between Faust and Mephistopheles. The bet is the following one. If Mephistopheles, the evil character, can create a situation where Faust will say, this is wonderful, moments stay on. In other words, reach fulfillment. Then Faust has lost the bet. So in other words, Faust himself, he does not believe that the situation is thinkable where he would be fulfilled. He's very skeptical, but also he's driven. He wants to come to that point, but he's very skeptical if this point is reachable. So he takes the bet with this Bephistopheles, who is now very motivated. And of course, he has all capacities. He has magic. He can create kind of wonders. He can create tricks. I mean, he, he's, he's, he has all the, 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 the different possibilities of this evil, of this devil, evil-like character. So he creates all these kind of situations. And sometimes he nearly wins. But interesting enough, he never fully gets Faust. Why is he not never fully getting Faust? Because Faust always has a new yearning. <laughs> so whenever Mephistopheles thinks, I got him, Faust has another yearning. So they always miss slightly each other. And uh, so that's the main idea of, the, of the, the two main protagonists of the book. By the way, the first, what do you think of the first thing uh, Mephistopheles tries? What, what the first situation he creates? What do you think? What idea you use first? What kind of situation he creates? Death? No death. This is going to come later. No. He, he of course, finds a very nice girl. <laughs> oh, Gretchen. okay. Because the bet is if I stay in this moment. And I celebrate the moment. If I, if I like this moment and I want to stay in this moment. So he brings a girl. Okay. Yeah. Then okay. he lost the bet. So, of course, he links Faust to a very interesting young girl. She's called Gretchen, a very legendary figure in German theaters. And she is wonderful. And of course, the, the idea of Mephisto is clear. Let's say if there is a love affair going on, wonderful. I mean, he definitely will say moments stay on. Yeah, so it seems to be very easy to reach. Now, Gretchen is a very legendary uh, character of a German woman also. Now she is wonderful. She's good looking. She is in the good sense of the word naive. Yeah. And she has very, very fine qualities. And Faust, in fact, falls in love with her. But it doesn't come in immediate terms to a conclusion because there is one aspect of Gretchen, which is difficult to handle, for Faust and Mephisto. She has a kind of in-depth, I would not say belief, but affinity to Christianity. She is following the morality of Christianity. So she doesn't want a, a, a one-night stand with Faust. She doesn't want to have a love affair with Faust. She wants marriage. Yeah. And because she's a very interesting lady, she sneathes also that Faust is not believing in God. And she does not like it. She does not like it. Instinctively, she doesn't like it. And she hates Mephisto. 
It's a very interesting, I mean, it's a very strong characterization of a woman who, who feels and fears this evil energy of Mephistopheles. She doesn't like it. She, she, she sniffs the magic of him. She, does, she doesn't like his look and shot. She's not embracing him it's because Faust did in a way, because Faust is somehow attracted to have these magic opportunities to fulfill his yearning, but, but Gretchen didn't. So through different incidents, Faust gets her into a love affair, but Gretchen is not happy. And she, she pays an awful price because in the process of getting into this love affair, her mother died and there's some collateral damages happening and she just suffers and can't, you know, she can't stand it. And in fact, in the end, she ends in prison and she's very destroyed. So it's one of the collateral damages which caused by Faust. But it's a very, very interesting third part, the figure of Gretchen. In the second part of Faust, I mean, Goethe really foresees the future in, in, in many ways. And like he talks about the, 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 the artificial creation of human beings in a scene called Homunculus, where, where basically an artificial human being is created. Uh, he talks about virtual worlds. He sees for the first time that something like virtual worlds could appear. He talks about globalization. He sees the, global, the collateral damages caused by globalization. He witnesses and describes the manifestation of paper money as an innovation of the time, which would change all over the world, created by Mephistopheles, the evil character. I mean, he, he goes in a journey to the Greek, back to the Greek time, basically coming to the conclusion that it's not a time which is alive anymore, if you like it or not. So it's something cut between us and the Greeks, so we'd have to look for something new. I mean, there's like eight, nine, ten themes raised in the second part of Faust, which absolutely are relevant of the time of the day. And, and if you think about when Goethe has written this, this, this whole thing, I mean, he died 1832, very, very visionary. I mean, he has really foreseen times. That's why Goethe is still up to time. It's like, it's in a sense that, that in his time, he was hardly understood in many ways. But now today we have the opportunity to understand it. Yeah? Because we get now everything together and he comes to conclusion and, and it's so thrilling. Yeah? It takes a bit of time to, to, to understand the structure of the book. And also you have to lose a bit the idea that it's very chronological in that sense. It's also not fully logical, the whole book. It's just creating worlds, fears, encounters, revelations. So it's, it's not in that sense chronological. So the whole book like ex explodes in the end in the totality of the universe, totality of science, totality of nature, totality of politics, totality of economics also. So it's, it's quite an, an amazing book. I've never delved into it, but I know of it, and I remember it being mentioned, and that is the Elective Affinities. Elective Affinities, yes, right. One of the most famous books of good. What is an Elective Affinity? Like just the title, what's the essence of it? <laughs> well, first of all, it's a very typical book of Goethe from different point of views. First of all, it's, it's one of the most wonderful books written in German language, just in terms of poetry, in terms of language skills and so on. By the way, Goethe managed a word treasury of 90,000 words all over his life. Wow. This is astronomical. <laughs> yes. And so, wow. so it, is, it is a wonderful manifestation of German language, first of all. Second aspect of the book is, which is sometimes underestimated, Goethe in his time was on the top of, of scientific debates. So in the case of the elective affinities, his field was chemistry. So he was absolutely thrilled and in-depth researching the whole world of chemistry. 
So that fascination of chemistry, in fact, he translates into human situation, rather fascinating. And the main idea is what comes together and what comes not together. So in other words, a, a selective affinities, which we all know is like you go into uh, uh, you go into a place somewhere and you see somebody talk with him one minute and you just experience magnetism. I mean, you somehow are attracted, just the words play together. You have a human relation. You cannot really explain why. It's just happening like a chemical event. Yeah? Vice versa, we all know you see somebody, you meet somebody at one minute, you are not even rationalizing it. It's the opposite. <laughs> you cannot, I mean, it just, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. So that this, this general principle, which comes from nature also, Goethe was very, very interested in. Now there comes a third element of the book, which is which also somebody Goethe is exploring. He has some difficulty with Christianity, to put it in general. Now Christianity, there's a self uh, definition of Goethe where he says about Christianity, well, I'm not anti-Christian. I'm also not unchristian, but I'm a non-Christian. Okay. <laughs> in other words, it does acknowledge humankind, human people need a moralic law in one way or the other. And he also believes that has that is probably universal. So what you do, should do, and what you should not do, there's something everybody shares. There's one problem he's not sure about, and it is part of the selective affinities. He's not sure about marriage because, first of all, he knows in the time he was living, there were many forced marriages. So many of the noble people of his time were forced into marriages because of political, economical, and all other interests. And he just was witnessing that they are not happy. In fact, it ended often that the man and the woman, they had a kind of extra relationships, which were rather accepted in the time of Goethe. So he just, he was a bit doubtful about the idea of marriage because he realized if there is selective affinities, I mean, what does it mean? <laughs> and now he brings in, in the selective uh, affinities, a scandalous scenario in the time of Goethe was in. I mean, you, you know, we talk here about end of 18th century, beginning of 19th century, a scandal. He creates a situation where you have two couples coming together and suddenly this thing happens. I mean, there is a selective affinity and it works crossover. So woman A likes man B, woman C likes man D. I mean, an unbelievable scenario to talk in honest terms about it in the time Goethe was living scandalous. No? And now he tries to explore, and it's again, rather complicated. Okay, so if you break marriages, which happens in the play, you break laws of Christianity, moralic standards. I mean, in, in probably all religions, I mean, you're not allowed to, let's say, if your wife and you and me, I mean, this is unthinkable. If you would think on it, you would say, I stuck for a lot. I mean, we turn away from it because it's so bad in a sense. So Goethe allows this thing to happen in the play and he explores the whole question of, of marriage, the whole question of morality. And Goethe is a bit unsure about it because it doesn't work also in the play. Even there is a love affair across and, and it even manifests at some point the people don't become happy. Because there comes another element which Goethe is very interested in, which is destiny. And, and destiny, Goethe comes to the conclusion, even he has some doubts on the, the, the whole setting of marriage, but also there's another element which is destiny, and even there are selective affinities. Somehow it doesn't come to a good end. 
which I think is common understanding. I mean, imagine for a second this situation, you have friends, yeah? you have another couple and you meet with, with your wife. I mean, somehow we understand, can that ever work? Yeah, it, it, somehow it can't. So Goethe is working out this whole structure. So selective affinities and has a lot of kind of symbolic uh, things, themes in it, and which would be now would more. It would again. It would need a couple of hours to talk about in a sense. But it, it is an amazing setting of again the mix between science, morality, and practice also. Now, if you allow me, just for the sake of getting some understanding of good, why why is this? also interesting in itself relating to Goethe. Goethe has, has another self-definition, which he reminds everybody to not forget. And it's a quite interesting one. Because he is basically arguing in, in the field of, of, of nature. He's saying about himself, I am a pantheist. In other words, I discover the divine all over the nature. But I don't see gods in the nature because there is metamorphosis and that's total change the whole time. You cannot associate yourself with anything in nature because it's changing and moving the whole time. But I'm a pantheist so far that I believe there is a divine presence in nature. So that's the first thing. He's in that sense a pantheist. It's, it's a difficult word, and, and, but I, I hope you get the point. Then in, in the field of morality, he is describing himself as a monotheist. In other words, he is looking for universal moralic laws which everybody can accept. Goethe is aware there needs to have a monotheistic structure and there are things everybody will agree. For instance, nobody would kill children. Yeah? There's so many elements, ethical elements, moralic elements, everybody would agree on. Goethe is obviously not sure if that is linked to Christianity or not. I think more likely he believes it's not linked to Christianity, but he believes there must be a, a monotheistic structure of morality in the world. And now it is the most important one, which is important for many aspects of Goethe, because that's something which I personally also like with Goethe. He's a wild man. Because he says, in the world of art, he says, I am a polytheist. In other words, I believe in many gods in the world of art. In other words, I'm in passion with so many things, different things, changing things, writing things. He believes strongly in the freedom of being a writer. And, and also Goethe is very known when he writes books. He, he don't has a concept. He has not a plan. He just writes, writes, writes. And because he's a politist and he's free and he's not you know, linked to any specific morality nor to any specific scientific cause, he allows himself total freedom. It's important to see because it's very complicated now because some people don't get that in a sense. So they think, well... If you argue Goethe was like this and that, he said in this and this book something else. But it's not a contradiction because Goethe writes very freely. And in the selective activities to come back, he, for instance, creates a scandal. <laughs> As, by the way, he became famous for another scandalous book, which was The Suffering of the Young Werther, which is describing a suicide, yeah, which was in that time unthinkable. So, so Goethe is very ready to provoke you know, create very kind of unknown scenarios and he breaks with lots of Christian norms and conventions also. And he's looking, exploring that in a, in a complete freedom. If he was working directly for the Duke, who was the kind of head of state, how did that affect his, you know, I mean, I'm just thinking now, uh, I mean, it's difficult to do anything scandalous nowadays because 
scandal is just the kind of status quo. But if one was to be, you know, for him to be so scandalous and be working directly for the for the monarch, didn't that like have an effect on his role, or was the was the duke just totally with him? Very good question, and and again, we we can come a bit uh, back to the biography of Goethe himself. I mean, Goethe is born in Frankfurt, which was in, in the time of, of in his time a quite big town. Uh, his father was a jurist, and the father basically forces him, or basically indicates to him there was not a big choice. He became a jurist too. He lives in Frankfurt. Frankfurt is a big town in that time. So now, in seventeen seventy five. He gets suddenly an invitation to come to Weimar. Weimar is a very small place at that time, has 6,000 inhabitants. But he gets a direct invitation from the Duke, who is a rather young man. Because the Duke is, is, is slightly younger than Goethe. And the Duke, the monarch, is looking for some education. And he heard, knew about Goethe because he, was he, was, he has written one of the first bestsellers of Europe, which was The Suffering of the Young Werther. So anyway, he comes to Weimar and... He does educate the, the monarch, but they also have wild times in, 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 in that kind of conventions of that time. So they have like fees, they, they, they run away. I mean, they go with horse riding. They have girl affairs, love affairs. I mean, they do all kinds of things. Nobody can judge them because it's the, the monarch and he's obviously he's, he's one of his best friends. And then also, I mean, he becomes more and more important for the monarch because he takes over some governmental um, uh, positions. He becomes finance minister. He's involved in politics. He, he drafts a complete new setting for the for the small uh, dukedom. He, he he creates a mine. He goes in mining. I mean, he does so many things. He becomes of key importance of the of the monarch. So so he has a kind of he, he's quite free, but he's very much involved in the protocol of the time and on the on the monarch's home and so on. And so he does all that. So he has a kind of freedom, but he's not completely free because he's an employee of the monarch. The monarch, to keep him in Weimar, also is very generous to him all over his life. So yes, and, and some people, in fact, did attack Goethe that because he did not take a very strong side for the French Revolution. Some people attacked him being the poet of the monarch, which I think... It, it is wrong because he was free and independent and also left Weimar at some point on holiday, basically, which, which went for two years. And he, he, I think not that the monarch was able to control him or influence him. But yes, he was somehow inframed in that setting of, of, the, of the monarch's rule in Weimar. But he had big freedom in terms of time, doing things and so on. And of course, in his writing and in the poetry, he was totally free. Yeah. Another example of his freedom is this whole thing in, in Weimar goes on for a couple of years. And Goethe is totally involved in politics, economics, and so on. But he has to pay one price, which is his writing skills stop, in a sense. I mean, he, he has no time anymore for writing new books. And he has a couple of books he was thinking on or did start already, and he never was able to finish it. Now, in the middle period of his life, he gets a very famous syndrome, which we know today. He gets basically a burnout. He just thinks he cannot go on like that. He's not fulfilled anymore. He's too much involved in protocols, too much political responsibility. Also, he has a kind of strange love affair with a married woman, which didn't work out. So all comes together, he has like a burnout. Now, overnight, <laughs> he takes his horses and, and leaves Germany to a journey to Italy, which will take two years of his life. 
And, and he does not know if the monarch would take that because he basically quits his service and just leaves. He doesn't ask him for permission, nothing of that. And Goethe is a bit nervous about it, but he knows he wants to be free and he wants to go to Italy. That's some, like, has a very kind of dreamlike idea what Italy is and he wants to learn painting and things like that. So he just gives up everything. In fact, he takes on a wrong name. So nobody would uh, recognize him as being somehow involved in politics and just wants to have a good time and free life. And he's a bit nervous about after a couple of months, the monarch, who has also tremendous sympathy for Goethe and, and does, does not want to lose him, basically gives him the green card and says, yes, you can continue and also pays him a salary, <laughs> which is, of course, not bad. So he can do this journey for two years. And in that time of these two years, he's totally free. On this journey to, to, to Italy, in the journey, he has the first real love affair. You know, breaking all conventions, having a love affair. He meets many people. He, 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 he lives a while in Rome. He has a kind of a community life with two other famous Germans who are painters. So for two years, he just gives up everything. He's very free and quite not involved. After the three years, he comes back to Weimar. And the monarch gives him more space to be a bit more or less uh, involved. He also finances him a very beautiful house, which is the Goethe house of today, and gives him a bit more time. Now, when Goethe was very old, there's a famous uh, uh, secretary of his, which is called Eckermann, who wrote a very famous book about Goethe, which is worth to read as my advice. And Eckermann interviews Goethe and asks him, when was the most happy time of your life? And Goethe says, well, it was on my Italian journey. And... Now it's interesting, if you think on Faust, if you remember back what we talked just a couple of minutes before, I mean, you think on this, the famous bet, yeah? I mean, where, where Faust thinks he will not get into a situation where he will say, moments stay on, moments stay, stay with me. I mean, no change anymore required because I'm happy. Goethe basically indicates that life experience he had under the condition of total freedom, economic independence in his Italian journey. And later on, he was basically not that free anymore and that happy also anymore. But he is saved. And we come now to the subject of Schiller. Because after the Italian journey, the real core of the German classic start, which is basically the friendship between Schiller and Goethe. Um, there's a very famous encounter between Schiller and Goethe. In the very beginning, it was a complicated relationship because... Schiller was also a very gifted writer, he was, but he was not so well established in Goethe. He had a kind of small job in Jena, uh, teaching on the university. And Goethe was on a, acting and living on a much higher level. Even though they were equal in terms of genius qualities, I mean, the, socially speaking, Goethe was much more higher. And Schiller was a kind of nearly a bit jealous on Goethe because he was living this high style life and, and and Schiller, who was so gifted and so talented, I mean, he had a very kind of miserable life in comparison. Anyway, they had a, a meeting, which was basically an accident in Jena on the university. And, and the whole relationship between the two of them starts as a very famous conversation, which is basically about Goethe's idea about plants. Yeah. And Goethe was thinking his whole life that there may be an option to find in nature something what he called the urpflanze, the core plant. A plant which you can explain how all the other plants unfolded on the basis of this core plant. In terms of plants, where would be the, the most basic plants? He was like trying to find that plant. So they had a conversation about the subject. Schiller was listening to it careful. And in the end, Schiller comes to the conclusion, which was very provocative to Goethe. And Schiller was a kind of very kind of strong intellect, he said to him, well, 
Mr. Goethe, that, that's really just an idea. And Goethe gives a famous answer, but then it's an idea I see and I can touch. So he was believing this is a reality, it's, it's, it's a gestalt, it's something real, while Schiller was connecting it to the world of the imaginary, of the world of ideas and so on. So they had a conflict about that, it was a very hot discussion and so on. But at the same time, also the friendship started because, I mean, Goethe and Schiller was, of course, realizing in each other one uh, how amazing in-depth characters uh, they were. Wow. Schiller was a poet or he was a, he was, was a playwright or both? Yeah. I mean, he was a poet and a, play, a famous playwright. And he, in contrary to Goethe, he was never involved in politics in that sense. He was just living his life as a university teacher, university professor. He was writing his plays, very genius plays, but he had not this kind of comparable relationship to the monarch. The monarch gave him a bit of money, but not comparable to Goethe. So Goethe was the star very much in the beginning and Schiller was in the shadow of the star. But in the relation between Goethe and Schiller, they did accept each other on as equal as on the same level. Schiller wrote the Ode to Joy which I believe the initial title was The Ode to Freedom. He Apparently, I mean, this is just from my, something that I remember from reading about it. Uh, he, it was originally Freiheit, and then he changed it to Joy. I'm not sure if it was changed already by Schiller, but but generally speaking, is is, is right, the description. I mean, Schiller was very much thrilled by, by the, the theme of freedom, and he was very much interested in political stories also. Like, for instance, Wallenstein, Wilhelm Tell, Maria Stuart, this was all also about, in one way or the other, about politics, power, freedom, this kind of things. Tell, which made Schiller world famous. Funny enough, Schiller himself was never in Switzerland, but he wrote one of the most famous poetic descriptions of, of the Swiss Wilhelm Tell. But he got the story basically from Goethe. I mean, Goethe had the idea to write a play called Wilhelm Tell. And at some point, because there was also politics involved in the, in, in the play, Goethe was thinking, well, I should just give it to Schiller because Schiller would, would explore it better than me. So and Schiller did it and it became world famous also because of Wilhelm Tell. So let's say that the, the field of interest of Schiller was of a different kind than of Goethe. And for instance, Schiller was never a scientist, while Goethe was, was very much keen on his scientific side. I mean, he went in all kinds of scientific researches and he was up to the, the debate of many scientific issues of his time. While Schiller was much more interested in history in politics, in freedom, in, in, in societal change and so on. So there were di different fields involved. Goethe and Schiller formed something which also was the, an expression of unity, really, because Goethe was very much aware that, that, that Schiller is like the missing part of his life, as Schiller, vice versa, was very aware that Goethe was the missing part of his life. And, and so the friendship became very, very kind of unifying more and more over the years. You know? and when Schiller died, and it was very difficult to bring the news to, to Goethe, who actually knew that he will die soon, I mean, in the year 1805. But, but all the secretaries, also his wife, everybody was very frightened to give the news to Goethe that Schiller died. So when they told him the news, he said, for a whole while, nothing. Just nothing. And he didn't go to the funeral because he never went to funerals. And he was just basically speechless, which, which is a very interesting phenomena of a man like Goethe word treasury, 90,000 words, to be just speechless. One of the definitions, if you, if, you met, if you meet the real, is that it makes you speechless. So there was something very real happening to Goethe of a very kind of fundamental kind. And, and then days later, he made this famous statement, 
because somebody like slightly tried to explore how how Goethe was feeling about everything, and, and Goethe just said in tears, he said, "Well, one half of myself died." Basically, saying indicating it will never come back. And and in fact, you could say after the German classics, which end with the death of Schiller, in that sense, I mean, you can say the rest of the life of Goethe, he was a bit lonely in a sense. I mean, because there was no real conversation partner anymore. And also, I mean, just naturally, there was a bit of a melancholy to getting older and so on. So, but but he never found that kind of friend anymore. Wow. Oof. But Schiller was a very, very, very different character. Because, for instance, Schiller was suffering lots of illnesses his whole time. I mean, he didn't become very, very, very old. He, he died in 1805. And he always had like different illnesses, which, which forced him to stay calm, not to work anymore and so on. When, when Schiller died, some doctors investigated in his body and they couldn't believe that he survived so long. This is where the famous statement relates to, which is the spirit forms the body. This is a statement of Schiller. In other words, his spirituality, his intellect was so strong that it basically was ruling his body. And, and even when his body was basically dead, he still lived on for a couple of months. Oh <laughs> you mentioned that Goethe never planned what he was writing. You said that he just wrote. Yeah. That's, a, again, a, a very interesting difference between Goethe and Schiller. Schiller was very, very precise. He knew exactly what he would write. He, he knew the whole play from beginning to the end and was very kind of scientifically nearly exploring the whole thing. But he knew exactly what he was doing. Goethe, very, very different. He writes, 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 changes subjects. It's not so in chronological terms. And he's much more flexible. And he has not a concept which he goes through from beginning to the end, which makes some of the books of Goethe rather difficult to read because they are not, in that sense, just complete plays with a chronological story and it comes with a start and an end and a conclusion. Rather, they are revealing things which many subjects are touched and, and have not that kind of structure which lead you as a reader to to experience something Goethe was strongly believing in which is metamorphosis yeah. so you basically experience a change while reading not knowing what the end result will be yeah and and so Goethe was creating that kind of unity between his understanding of nature and how nature works and you as a reader and you as a human being being part of nature following the same concepts and laws so you don't know what 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 will be revealed to you in the very end of the story. Yeah. There's one famous statement of Goethe, which I think is, is interesting here. Goethe's, one of his fundamental statements of Goethe is nature is not a system. You cannot systemize it like that because it, it's always one step further. You never fully get it. You can don't make an abstract model of it because it is in change the whole time. So, so nature and yourself unescapably are in the modus of change. Goethe was a polymath uh, and is this huge figure of the, uh, not just the German intellectual world, but the intellectual world of Europe. And on that note, I want to touch on the idea of Goethe being Muslim and Goethe being one of the first Muslims and of the European intelligentsia. I mean, just before we start to talk a bit about the relationship between Goethe and Islam, I think it's important to be aware of that Goethe's works are so big and so far-reaching that it's not so easy to come to very quick conclusions. 
just to indicate that one of the most famous German philosophers of our time is a man called Rüdiger Safransky, who wrote very famous biographies about Goethe, about Schiller, about Heidegger, about Schopenhauer. So he's, he's world-class in terms of thinking. He wrote a biography about Goethe, which was uh, published a couple of years ago. And he was asked, how, how long did it take you to write the biography? And he said, six years. Because he had to go through 15,000 pages of works and 15,000 pages of letters. So it is an astronomical amount of knowledge, which is somehow linked and represented by Goethe as such. And now, I mean, you could go in many directions to find very much up to today relevant knowledge. For instance, in the world of science, his color theory, or in the world of politics, his, his kind of whole of assessment of the French Revolution, of his rejection of revolutionary energies, his belief in evolution, and so on. And uh, in the world of poetry, of course, he was developing new skills, you know, how to create new forms of plays, which were basically breaking with the conventions of his times, and so on and so on. There's one aspect of him. He was also lifelong interested in religion. We mentioned before that his, his whole relationship to, towards Christianity was, um, let's say, complicated. I mean, the end of the Faust, the, the famous world-famous book I mentioned before, he indicates his belief order in terms of how, what has happened in your afterlife. And he leaves it quite open. But he clarifies it's not a Christian view. He clarifies it, it has to do with Tawhid. And he clarifies it, there is something like a, a divine inspired life after your death. I think that, that he all believes in. Now, since he was basically a young man, he was also reading different religious books. I mean, he did read the Bible, but he also started on a quite early stage to, to read the Quran because he was very educated in, in all directions of, of life. He was also kind of updated about debates about Christianity and Islam too, all over his life. When he was living in Weimar, there was one year, I think it was 1813, he, through an accident, comes closer to Islam. What happened? I mean, some soldiers from Bashikistan, I think, was visiting, visiting Weimar that time. And one man of them brings him a kind of a paper, an enrolled paper, as a gift, as a present. And now you have to know that Goethe, all his life through, believed very strong in destiny. I mean, he believed in destiny. Nothing happens by accident. He takes this gift, unfolds it, and he sees some Arabic script. And he's absolutely thrilled. He just thinks this is something extraordinary. There's like a message coming to me, to me basically in an unknown language. So he goes to a professor in Jena and asks him to translate it, and it's a Surah Al-Iklas. And he takes it quite serious. Later on, through other accidents, he also organizes a kind of prayer, in fact, a Juma prayer, in a gymnasium in Weimar, because he wants to see how people pray. And very typical for Goethe, he also starts trying to write and read Arabic, because he's always been a very active man. I mean, not just creating any theory, he also wants to have practical experience. So he's rather impressed by Islam. Suddenly, also later on in 1813, he writes a very famous book uh, called East Western Divan, which is, first of all, a kind of appreciation of Hafiz, the poet, because he acknowledged and he, he really loves the whole Sufism of him. So he's very kind of inspired by that, thrilled by it. And he starts to give different kinds of statements, famous statements. One, for instance, is 
he, Goethe is talking now about himself, I'm not rejecting the idea that, that I myself, I'm a Muslim. He starts to speak in a time where, I mean, Islam was really hated in Europe. There was lots of hatred towards Islam. He suddenly starts to speak positive about Islam, which again causes a scandal. And that hatred is, is because of the Ottoman Empire? Yeah, because of the Turkey, uh, Turkey, Turkish inventions. I mean, you know, there's lots of rumors about the Islamic world. I mean, many, many scholars in Europe uh, attacked the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. Goethe, in fact, defends the Prophet on that, said, no, 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 he's somebody who, who got something revealed from the divine. So he becomes very kind of, he takes, in a sense, the side of Islam and says and declares, this is very, very interesting. I think you can say with good reasons that if you put many of his statements together, of different kind, you can say he embraces the Shahada. I think he, he believes there is no God but Allah and the Prophet Muhammad is his messengers. I think he does through different um, statements of his in different times, he does acknowledge that statement. He embraces it basically. But on the same time, of course, he's not a practicing Muslim, can't be because he has no idea about, I don't know if he has any idea about Sakat, for instance. There's no community, there's no teaching and so on. He's basically coming to that conclusion on his own. So, was Goethe Muslim is, 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 a, is a kind of big debate in Germany about it. And most of people, I would say 90% of people would just ignore that and say, well, this is just stupid. You cannot use Goethe like that. He was not close to Islam at all. But very often also, of course, people do not know. Goethe was in one way or the other linked to Islam. I mean, the German public has basically ignored that fact. There's one exception, there's a wonderful scholar called Katharina Mommsen. She wrote a book, uh, Goethe and the Arabic World. And she, in fact, gathers all the evidence. She's a very, very wonderful lady, very scholarly. I mean, she did a tremendous amount of work. And she was the only German in Germany who really saw that link, yeah. that, that Goethe is significant. And Goethe is significant if you believe he was a Muslim or not, because he, he makes much more. He makes so many other points, which are of key importance for our time. Now, if you go in a more in-depth way, to the, to the core of the problem, that the problem is in which, on which point you become a Muslim. Yeah. So if you embrace and if you confirm the Shahada and there's nobody around you <laughs> so who can witness it, but it's confirmed that you have done it, is there, is there a possibility to say you are Muslim? It's an open question which could be debated and so on. Now in Germany, it's a big debate. If you just believe in Allah and you do one time the year the prayer and you drink your beer in the evening, some people would say, well, still a Muslim because liberal Muslim. And in fact, it's very hard to, to, to deny somebody's Islam as long as he's not actively negating Islam. So there's the new idea of a liberal Muslim. In that sense, if you take that as a norm, I think Goethe comes very, very close. But... On the end of the day, I'm not, it's not my main interest to declare Goethe to a Muslim in that sense or not. I think he was very much living also in the open. And if you take the Faust as his testimony, you can say the, the Faust ends, the most famous book of Goethe ends in a kind of very open sphere. But I think what you can definitely argue and can definitely say he was not a Christian. Well, Haji Abu Bakr, you are a lawyer. <laughs> So you're always going to give the full argument. I am not a lawyer. And as far as I'm concerned, if he believed the Shahada and he believed Ashadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah, that's enough. And therefore, 
he is a Muslim and therefore we shall call him Muhammad Wolfgang von Goethe. End of story. In that sense, I turn from the lawyer to the judge and just, and just say Amin. Bismillah. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I have just last statement from my side, but I have a bit of a conspiration theory why Goethe was not, in the very end of the Faust, did not mention Islam. I think in a very wise way, he was foreseeing that if he would have done it, let's say if he would have said, if he would have said in, in, in the end of the Faust, it's somehow in one way or the other, it's Islam. He, he may have not been read anymore. So he leaves it a bit open that people go into the work, his works because the whole work is a call for Allah. Yeah. And I think just today in the 21st century, if you would brand it with Islam, people may just not flee from it. But if you go through the works, I mean, your call is Islam because your call will be for Allah. And that's my theory why he was a bit careful because in the time when he wrote the East Western Divan, it was a book which was sold in his lifetime like 50 times or so. And you had to write a whole commentary on the book because people just hated the idea that Europe or Germany or Goethe himself is somehow close to Islam. So he was realized there's lots of hatred and also misinformation. And so I think he was a bit avoiding to be labeled like that. Yeah. But his whole being, his whole work, his whole understanding of nature, of the divine and so on, will lead you to Allah anyway. Just to close up, what would your call to action be for anybody listening to start a journey with Goethe? I mean, my advice would be to read one book, Eckermann's book, which was a secretary of Goethe, where he reports about Goethe's life and the main subjects he's touching and so on. It's a wonderful book. Uh, Nietzsche's statement on Eckermann was is the most important book ever written by a German. So it is a very kind of firm confirmation by Nietzsche. But also if you go through the book, you will learn all elements we have just talked about in the last one hour. They're all mentioned in the book. And because Eckermann is a very serious witness of Goethe, yeah, because he has been for Goethe for many years, it's very authentic and reports the whole being and the whole thinking and the whole life of Goethe. It's a very good summary to start with. And then, of course, then the whole world of Goethe is open to you. You can read uh, one of his most famous plays. And, and I think the aim in the end should be or to go through the Faust because that is, uh, I think, a book with lots of secrets. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. This one was particularly interesting for me because I've heard Goethe mentioned a number of times and I've read lines from his works, but I've never actually gone into his life nor into his works this one's been a great motivation for me to really dive into the ocean of Goethe's works and by extension the works of Schiller and if you yourself feel the same way I've added into the episode description links to some of the key texts by both Goethe and Schiller and the book written by his secretary Eckermann so once again Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you.